Well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Light, and my day job is that I am a lawyer, but not one of the cool lawyers that you see on TV. Mostly what I sit in as a write wills, don't ever get to go to court and point at people. Uh, but that's what I do. I'm also one of the people that they uh, allow to come get up and speak to you when nobody who actually has a theology degree is available on a particular Sunday morning. And so this being one of those Sunday mornings, you get to hear me. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the Old Testament reading, uh, which is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15, because that's where, we, where we'll be spending most of our time this morning, although we're going to touch also on the other three passages of Scripture uh, that folks read for us as part of our liturgy. And wh what I want to do as an introduction is to set up these passages of Scripture for you, because they are four passages from four very different time periods, but I think that what we're going to see as we go through them is that they all have very, very similar themes. So the, the oldest one that we read was the psalm, Psalm 26, and that psalm was written by David. And it was probably written by David during the period of time when he was running away from King Saul, right? King Saul was trying to kill him. He was out in the countryside. David hadn't really done anything wrong. He hadn't hurt Saul in any way at that point, but Saul wanted to kill him anyway. And David is saying in the psalm, I'm innocent. Deliver me, God. Deliver me from this bad experience that I'm having. And we've got the Jeremiah passage, uh, which is probably about 400 years after that. And Jeremiah's job, his assignment from God, was to explain to the Israelites that their civilization was about to come to an end that the Babylonians were going to come and that they were going to take them all away, take them all to Babylon. God says, I'm, I'm not even selling the things that you own. I'm going to give them away to the Babylonians because you've sinned so much, and this is what I have to do in order to reset you. This, as you can imagine, is not a popular message for Jeremiah to convey to these people, and as a result, he spends a great deal of time in a cistern um, as the Babylonians are taking over the city. Then we fast forward about another 650 years, 700 years or so, to the gospel reading. And the gospel reading is, of course, during the life of Christ. It's towards the end of Jesus' life, during the period of time when Jesus had decided that it was time for him to make his way towards Jerusalem, where we know, and as we saw from the passage, he knows that he's going to suffer a lot, uh, be tortured, and ultimately be killed. And the passage that we read this morning comes right after the one that we read last week. So last week, Peter just made this great, great uh, realization. He made this great statement that Jesus was the Messiah. He realized that. Um, and then Jesus says, I've got to go suffer. And, and Peter mm, doesn't like that idea very much. Then we fast forward to the last reading, uh, which is from St. Paul's letters to the Romans, about 25 years after the gospel reading. And St. Paul is writing to a, a church that is having trouble getting along. Uh, it's got kind of a Jewish side and a non-Jewish side, and they're having trouble meshing together well. And, of course, they're in Rome. They're in the belly of the beast, and the Roman authorities are not thrilled that they are there. And there's a lot of tension in the air for those reasons. So it's interesting to me that although these four passages take place in four such different periods of time, that, that they all echo at some level very similar themes. And this is especially so in the first three of the four passages, although I think if you keep reading in the Romans passage, you would actually be begin to see the same thing. They are experiencing a circumstance that they find rather confusing. They are all saying at some level that they are suffering or they're about to suffer. 
right? David says, I'm, you know, I'm out in the wilderness. God, deliver me. I need you to deliver me. Jeremiah says, everybody hates me. What's going on with this? Um, and, and Jesus says very explicitly to the disciples, I'm about to have to go suffer a lot, and actually I'm going to die as part of that suffering. And it's confusing. It's confusing in some instances, like David and Jeremiah, to the people who were experiencing it. It's confusing in the gospel passages to the people who were hearing about it. They're all confused because they, they don't understand why this is happening to them. And so in some ways, in very important ways, they're actually like us. I suggest to you this morning that the modern Western church has lost track of its theology of suffering, and that's why we have such a problem dealing with it. And in some ways that makes sense, right? The modern church in the United States is richer than any other church in any period of history. Uh, we are relatively secure from a material perspective. Nobody in here probably is worrying where their meal is coming from this afternoon. We have not been invaded and occupied. You've not seen your family taken away here, at least in the West. Um, most of the diseases which have caused so much suffering to so many of God's people all throughout the years have been eradicated. And so it's possible for us, un unlike many other churches and many other times of history, it's po and even today in other places of the world, it's possible for us to go through periods of our life where we forget what suffering is like. And that's caused us in some ways to lose track of the theology of it. And so then when it does hit, it, hit us, because it will, it will hit us no matter how rich we are, no matter how secure we think we are, no matter how many diseases we think we've eradicated, there is going to come a time in your life when you experience deep pain. Maybe not as often as other churches have in history, but it's coming. And when you do experience it, I think we've lost the theology that enables us to, to, to deal with it. Now, I cannot give you a full theology of suffering in the 20 minutes <laughs> that I'm permitted to speak with you this morning. But I hope that I can give you a couple of things to remember. And again, because I'm a lawyer and I just have to organize my thoughts into points or else I don't have any idea what I'm supposed to say, it's the way I am. Two things I want you to remember. One, the fact of suffering. And two, the one who experienced the ultimate suffering. First, the fact of suffering. And second, the one who experienced the ultimate suffering. Okay, so first, the fact of suffering. As I said before, all four of these readings at some level, but especially the first three, uh, express some sense that they're in a hard circumstance and they want God's help. Um, and this is especially explicit in the Jeremiah reading and in the Matthew reading, but it's in the psalm too. But the thing that's interesting about this to me is that not so much that they're experiencing the bad circumstance, but they're all expressing some degree of surprise that they are experiencing the bad circumstance. So, for instance, in the psalm, the psalmist says at one point, I've walked innocently, I've washed my hands in innocence, All right, I haven't done anything wrong, and yet, he says at the end, God deliver me. I've done all these right things, and yet I still find myself in this situation, God, where I need you to deliver me. Um, this is especially the case in Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah, at the, in, in his complaint to God, uh, talks about how he hasn't done anything wrong. I haven't lent, nor have I borrowed, and yet all of them are cursing me. And, of course, lending and borrowing was easy to do incorrectly under the Jewish law. So what Jeremiah is saying when he says that is, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't sinned. In fact, Jeremiah says, I've actually done, God, what you asked me to do. 
uh, when you asked me to become a prophet, your words became to me a joy, the delight of my heart. And then he goes on to say in verse 17, I never went and partied with all those party people, right? I did not sit in the company of revelers. I did not rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was, was upon me. And so he's done all of these great things, but at the same time he's saying uh, that, that there's an incongruity there because he's done these things. He's done what God asked, and yet still he can say in verse 18, why is my pain unceasing and my wound incurable? He's done the right thing, but he's still experiencing the suffering. And then in the gospel passage, we have Jesus, who always did the right thing, right? And, and has been acknowledged by his followers now as the Messiah, the one that God promised, the one that he sent. And then he tells them, well, I'm going to have to go suffer. And Peter can't understand how that could possibly be the case. What does Peter say? That's the last thing God would want, Master, he said, that is never, ever going to happen to you. All right, so I'm a lawyer and I deal with logical premises. And there is a logical premise behind the statements that all three of these folks are making. And the premise is this, that if you obey God, that if you do what God wants, the result of that is going to be a life where you don't suffer. If you do what God wants, good things are going to happen to you. And that's why they're expressing this confusion that they have done what God wanted and yet they still find themselves in these horrible situations where they need God's deliverance. If you look at what Jeremiah says about this, Jeremiah is especially confused and his confusion even passes, I would say, into anger. Because look at what he says at the end of verse 18 when he's talking to God. Look at this. This is amazing. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook? like waters that fail. He is suggesting to God that God has pulled a fast one on him, isn't he? Were you going to be to me like a deceitful brook? I obeyed you, why is this happening to me? It's interesting to see how other translations translate this verse, because I, sometimes I think when I read the ESV that the ESV has not quite captured the strength of Jeremiah's language. There's another translation that I like to read, um, and the translator has Jeremiah saying to God, you have been to me a veritable deceiver. But the one that goes the furthest is actually the Old King James Version. Do you know what the Old King James Version has Jeremiah calling God? If you look at the Old King James Version, that one that they read in the Baptist church where you grew up, remember that one? Jeremiah says to God, you're a liar. Wow. This thought that obedience to God equals lack of suffering is a really powerful thought, and it can lead to a lot of confusion if you internalize it, because that is not the way that the world works. That's not the way that God designed the universe. We have a name for that. It's called the prosperity gospel. And that's not the Christian faith. Why, and if you think about it, if you can step back from the pain of your suffering for a moment and think about it in the abstract, why would we expect it to be that way, really? In a world that Adam and Eve broke and corrupted, why should we expect that when God's people try to reverse that corruption, when God's people try to bring his kingdom and actualize it, that the broken world is going to be happy and excited about that? When the universe is fallen, 
why would we think that when, when God is restoring us and using us to restore the things around us, that there's not going to be pushback against that? It actually makes more sense to think that we are going to suffer, not to think that we aren't going to suffer. But it's, we don't like suffering, right? Suffering isn't fun. And so it's, it's easy for us to tell ourselves this is confusing, and, and it's easy for us to say this shouldn't be happening, and we might be better off if we understood that it is likely to happen and worked on trying to develop a framework to process our suffering and to, to cope with it. Now, at this point, I want to stop and make an aside because there may well be somebody who's sitting in this room this morning who is right in the middle of a period of their life where they're experiencing great pain from something. Um, and I think, you know, Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, said that you're never really any good to anybody else until you've experienced a lot of suffering. Um, and so I think that having gone through really hard times at periods in my life over the last 10 years, my heart um, is tender for you in a way that it probably would not have been 10 years ago. Um, and if you're sitting here today and you're in pain, I'm really sorry. But let me, let me try to encourage you a little bit. It's hard to process some of these big picture things um, when you're sitting in the middle of the pain. And I want you to think a little bit again about what Jeremiah said to God. You're a veritable deceiver. Are you going to be to me a deceitful brook? Or in the, in the King James Version, are you a liar? It's strong language. And actually, if you read through the Psalms, you can see that some of the psalmists um, say even stronger things to God, even than what Jeremiah said. And as an aside to the aside, come to morning prayer, and you can read through all the Psalms, and we'll talk about it together. It's awesome. The psalmists say these things, and maybe you, in your pain, have said these things or want to say these things to God. And what I want to say to you is that God's people have often said these sorts of things to God. And you know, the thing about God is that he's actually big enough to take it. He can take you expressing to him how you feel. One of the things that's interesting to me about this Jeremiah passage is, is that even though in the Psalms we have lots of people, lots of examples of people saying this sort of thing to God, um, this is one of the only passages in Scripture where we actually have God's response Right, because the Psalms tend to be, you know, talking to God. But here we have Jeremiah saying this thing to God, and now we actually have at the end of that passage what God says back to Jeremiah. And it's not necessarily what you would expect him to say, and it's, it's, it's definitely not what you might fear that he says, because God's response is not, "How dare you insult my Majesty? Get away from me! I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You think you've suffered already? You're going to suffer some more having said this to me." No, it's nothing like that, is it? He speaks some truth because he has to, because God is not a liar. And so when Jeremiah said that, it, what he was saying about God was not true. But God's response isn't anything like the angry screed that I just said. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you. Jeremiah, you haven't said the right thing. I'm not a liar. But, but come on, come back. And when you do, let me tell you what's going to happen. You'll stand before me. You shall be as my mouth. 
and I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you. What a gentle thing to say to somebody who has just called you a liar. Isn't God just like the father in the story of the prodigal son wanting his people to come home? And if you're sitting here today and you're in that pain and you want to say those things to God, well, sometimes you almost have to say it. But understand, then once you've said it, listen to what God is saying here. Not exactly true. And come back to me. And I promise you, I'm still here for you, even if after you've said this thing to me. The fact of suffering. All right, the second thing is to understand the ultimate experiencer of suffering. The ultimate experiencer of suffering. The one who suffered the most. How do we develop a framework to even begin to process this when so many horrible things happen to us and we experience such pain? Well, I think that there are two things to keep in mind um, as you're trying to figure out a way to develop this framework. First, bring back into your mind that paradigm, that logical uh, predicate that I was talking to you about before. Uh, remember, the predicate was, if, and this is a false predicate, but it's one that we want to believe is true often. If we obey God, then everything's going to go great all the time, right? Obedience equals happiness, lack of suffering, lack of pain. And you may think that you want that, but I'm suggesting to you that you actually don't want that. In fact, that, that paradigm, if that was the way the universe worked, that paradigm would actually be a disaster for everyone who is in here, and here's why. I'm a lawyer, I deal in logic and corollaries. If this is true, obedience equals pain-freeness, then the opposite corollary also has to be true, right? Disobedience, if you accept this logical framework, disobedience would equal great suffering and punishment. Do you see how that would have to be true? If one is true, the opposite also has to be true. And do any of you really wish to be punished for your disobedience? Think about the psalm again, right? David says, oh, I've washed my hands in innocence. This is the government leader who later um, would commit a murder to cover up his one-night stand, right? At the end of the psalm, he says, don't take me away with the bloodthirsty. Well, there was a time in David's life when he actually was one of the bloodthirsty. Isn't that the case? And aren't all of us in the same boat. If that paradigm is true, obedience equals pain-freeness and disobedience equals great suffering, <laughs> boy, all of us are in for a boatload of it. What we really need is somebody to come and break the paradigm, right? Otherwise, there's no hope for any of us in our suffering or in any other way. And so the thing that we need to remember is that Jesus broke the paradigm. Jesus really did wash his hands in innocence, as David said that he did in the psalm. And having done so, uh, he went up to Jerusalem where he was tortured. Jesus really did do what Jeremiah said he did. Jesus did really delight in God's word, in all of it, at every single period of his life. And having done so, he went up to Jerusalem where he was murdered. 
He is the ultimate innocent one. And yet his obedience, which was an actual obedience, not a theoretical obedience, resulted in great suffering. He broke the paradigm so that we would not have to live under the paradigm if we would turn to him in faith. That's the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember is just slightly more abstract, and then I'm done. Paul says something mysterious in a verse that we didn't read this morning, but which I couldn't get out of my mind as I was thinking about this sermon. The verse is Colossians 1.24. And Paul talks in that verse about filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. That's an old King James translation. But I think it's a good translation. Filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now that's a confusing thing because what could possibly be lacking in Jesus' perfect sacrifice, which he offered once for all for us all on the cross? Well, there's a sense in which nothing is lacking from that sacrifice, but there is a sense in which something might be lacking as that Paul is talking about, and that's this. Jesus experienced the full weight of the world's sin, and he experienced every kind of suffering imaginable. But Jesus did not necessarily experience the very exact circumstances of your particular suffering, necessarily. Because your life is different from his. And so there is a sense in which, although Jesus experienced every kind of suffering imaginable, he did not necessarily experience your particular and exact circumstances. And a critical tool... I think, and I've found in my own life, to processing your own suffering is to learn to see that suffering as parallel and complementary to the suffering that Christ endured, even though it is not exactly the same. Paul said in the, in the New Testament passages that we read that we're part of the body of Christ, right? We're members of Christ's body. And so there is a sense, a mystical sense to be sure, but it's true. It's in the scriptures. And St. Augustine interpreted this verse this way. There's a sense in which when you suffer, the body of Christ is also suffering. Are you lonely? Well, wasn't Jesus lonely? when he's faced down the Sanhedrin alone at the end of his life? Did your friends betray you? Well, didn't his run off and deny that they knew him in the moment in his life when he needed them the most? Has the church mistreated you? Oh, that's a big one. Flannery O'Connor said that it seems to be a fact that you have to suffer as much from the church as for it. I can tell by the noise that some of you have experienced that. But wasn't Jesus misunderstood and even persecuted by the religious authorities of his time? Does your family misunderstand you? Or at worst, have they abandoned you? Jesus' family at one point tried to have him locked up. Are you experiencing physical pain that goes along with being in a broken world? Didn't Jesus experience unimaginable physical pain when he was hanging on the cross? Have your children walked away from you? Isn't Jesus the father uh, in the story of the prodigal son whose child walked away? And didn't Jesus say as he was contemplating Jerusalem, how much have I longed to gather you up 
as a mother hen gathers up his chicks, but you were not willing. Can't you hear in that the pain that you're experiencing if your children have walked away from the faith? Yes, everything that you experience, Jesus experienced in some way also. And as you meditate on your suffering, as you learn to link it, as you learn to to offer it up to Jesus, uh, as you meditate on it, you feel some small piece of what Jesus felt. And as you feel that, I suggest to you that you learn to identify with Jesus even more closely. And identifying with Jesus more closely and looking at him and suffering as you suffer, you become like him. And somehow, in some mysterious way, in doing this, you can experience, I believe, God's healing. Just like Isaiah said, that it's by Jesus' stripes, his punishment, his suffering, that we are healed. My prayer for you today is that you'll experience some piece of this healing, too. Um, as you offer these things to God, and as you, as you walk through a difficult time, perhaps, in your own life, let us remember these things when the suffering inevitably comes. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.